today we're honored and blessed to have Mike Gendron and his wife Jane. And they, uh, are, as I said in Sunday school, I met them out in California when we were speaking at a Stealing the Mind conference and had a wonderful time. We stayed in the same hotel and had breakfast together. And what I appreciate is their passion for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, Mike, we welcome you to come and share with us today. Before I begin, I must um, explain to you that God has gifted me as an evangelist. Some of you may not know the definition of an evangelist, but it's one who's been called in from out of town to deliver a message that the church would normally fire their pastor for preaching. <laughs> I, play, I played a lot of baseball all the way through college. It's called hit and run. <laughs> but... Um, in all seriousness, some of you may remember when you were first converted to Christ, when you first were made alive in Christ, that the Lord did something in your early life to boost your faith in Him. And I want to share just a brief testimony of what He did shortly after I was converted to Christ. I was still in the corporate world selling computers, and we had a sales meeting up in what is called the Salmon Capital of the World, Vancouver, British Columbia, and we went out one morning before our meetings to catch some salmon, and I remember seeing God's creation with believing eyes for the first time, and I was just in awe as we went out in that intercoastal waterway, and I saw the beautiful mountains on one side and the snow-capped peaks on the other, and then I saw the balance of nature as the seagulls came down and fed off the fish. And I just remember being such in such awe of God's majesty and creation. And I remember just lifting up a prayer of thanksgiving for bringing me here. And then I said, Lord, I'm here to catch one of your fish. I know you're sovereign. Would you send one of them my way? <laughs> so when the fishing guy gave me my pole, I cast it out for the first time. Within a minute, I thought Jaws 2 had jumped on the end of my line. Immediately, this fish starts running out for about, oh, I don't know, 500 yards, and I began battling this fish, only to hear the fishing guide say, keep the pole bent, otherwise he'll throw the hook. And so after 45 minutes of battling this fish, he said, now be ready. When he sees the boat, he's going to get spooked, and he's going to want to run again. I said, if he does, he wins, because I'm done. <laughs> Well, fortunately, the salmon was as tired as I was, and so we scooped them up, we brought them back to the fishing guide, to the fishing camp, and there there was a sign on the wall that said 35. The fishing guide said that represents the largest salmon caught in the world so far this year. And when we put the salmon that the Lord sent my way on the scales, it tipped the scales at 46 pounds. I just began trembling. I said, Lord, I just wanted a fish. <laughs> and of course, the scripture that came to mind is God does exceedingly more than we could ever ask or imagine. Immediately, the, the news media came out and they started asking me questions and how I was able to catch this world record. And all the other sales directors that were with me were all unbelievers. And they told me how lucky I was. I said, no, this had nothing to do with luck. Oh, so you're a skilled fisherman, Mike? You've never told us that. I said, no, this has nothing to do with skill either. I simply prayed to the creator of this fish to send him my way. Well, then they really began mocking me. 
But what a joy it was. I remember calling my wife back in Dallas, still trembling that the Lord would do this to boost my faith. But I must tell you, that was in 1986. That's the last fish I ever caught. (laughs) (laughs) Ever since then, though, I've been fishing for men. Do you know the difference between fishing for fish and fishing for men? See, when you catch a fish, they're alive, but then they die. But when you catch a man, they are dead in their sins, but then they come alive in Christ. And as much joy as I had catching this world record, there is no greater joy than seeing those who are dead in their sins come alive in Christ. Amen? I know some of you have experienced that, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. Well, I'd like to begin this morning by opening the Word of God, and I want to take you to Acts chapter 20. We want to read verses 17. And if you wouldn't mind standing as we read God's holy word. Acts chapter 20, verse 17. This is the end of the Apostle Paul's ministry. And we read from Miletus, he went to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials, which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, bound in spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus, to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that all of you, among whom I have went about preaching the kingdom, will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. Dropping down to verse 36. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with all of them. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Oh, Holy Father, we do thank you for this Lord's Day where we can praise our Lord Jesus Christ as our King and our High Priest. What a privilege it is that you've given us to be his ambassadors to take his message to a lost and dying world. And Father, we realize what an awesome responsibility you've given each one of us. So might this message this morning 
Encourage each one of us and might your spirit exhort each one of us and give us the power to boldly do what the Apostle Paul did. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm sure all of you are aware that all Christians are called to be ambassadors for the Lord Jesus Christ. There is some confusion within the church that only those who are gifted as evangelists are called to witness, that this is a royal privilege given to all of us. We are called to make his last command our first concern. And we know his last command was to go and make disciples. Not decisions, by the way, but disciples teaching them to observe everything the Lord has commanded. We are called to praise the one who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. That should be on our lips constantly, a remembrance that we were once in spiritual darkness, but the Lord called us out of that into the glorious light of his gospel. And also in 1 Peter 3, we're always to be ready to give a reason for the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. When we look at the Apostle Paul and the text that we just read out of Acts chapter 20, I want to share with you some of the characteristics of the Apostle Paul in hopes that we might all emulate them and be more faithful witnesses for the Lord Jesus. First, we see that he served with humility, with tears, and trials. Did you pick up the emotion as I read Paul's account there right before he went to glory? the emotion that he shared with the Ephesian elders. He had great humility. It was Paul who said in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10, only by the grace of God, I am what I am. Oftentimes in our ministry, people ask us, how can you be so gentle and humble with those who attack you? And my response is always the same. Only by the grace of God, I am what I am. I used to be one of them, but God extended his grace to me. Paul wrote those words with great tears. He had great sorrow and increasing grief for the lost who were perishing, as we see in Romans 9-2. And Paul endured many trials for the sake of those chosen for salvation, as we read in 2 Timothy 2, verse 10. Paul did not shrink from declaring anything profitable as we see in verse 20. Yes, he was ridiculed and criticized. He was mocked and beaten, tortured and persecuted, and even imprisoned for the sake of the gospel. In spite of this fierce opposition, he faithfully and unashamedly proclaimed the good news. The theme verse of our ministry is Romans 1.16, the gospel. We're not to be ashamed of it, for it's the power of God for the salvation of all who believe it. Paul understood that he was nothing without Jesus. He treated the loss with great humility. His compassion and sorrow for the pending torment and suffering of the lost was always accompanied with an urge to help them. I want you to know that Being an ambassador for the Lord Jesus Christ is the most successful endeavor that you can ever untake in this world. As a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ, you can be successful every time you share the gospel. Your duty is no different from that of a mailman. What is his responsibility? To deliver the mail to everybody on his route. He's not responsible for what they do with the mail. 
for responding to the bills or responding to the letters. He's, re he's been successful once he's delivered the mail. That's all we're called to do. Deliver the message of Christ. We are not responsible for the response. And doesn't that give you a sigh of relief? You see, we are to trust the power of God for salvation. Faith comes from hearing the word of Christ. Our responsibility is to deliver the message. And once we do, we've been successful. So I hope that's an encouragement to all of you. Paul was also, in verse 24, noted as selfless and fully devoted to Christ. Paul said, I do not consider my life as dear to myself in order that I might finish the course. Like Paul, we should no longer live for ourselves, but for Christ who died for us and who rose again. Paul wrote those words in 2 Corinthians 5.15. What an example he gave for each one of us. We look at Paul's faithfulness. He boldly taught publicly from house to house in verse 20. Like Paul, our, responsible, our responsibility is to faithfully deliver the message with clarity and boldness in our circle of influence and then beyond. God has given us each a circle of influence, starting with our family and our loved ones, and then our neighbors, then our co-workers, and then people that we meet throughout every day. When we look at Paul's missionary journeys, it's truly fascinating why he is considered the first century's greatest evangelist, to see the territory that he covered and what he endured to deliver the gospel of grace to those who, faithful, who desperately needed to hear it. We see in Mark 1.15, the first command that the Lord Jesus gave was to repent and believe the gospel. And so what, what did Paul do? He repeated that very first command of Christ. He said, be imitators of me just as I saw also am imitator of Christ. He solemnly testified to all people that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. My dear brothers and sisters in Christ, one of the most glaring omissions in the presentation of the gospel today is that of repentance. There are many people and many professing Christians, there's even ministries devoted to stating that you don't need to repent in order to be saved. Why would the Lord Jesus begin and end his ministry with those words? Repent and believe the gospel. At the end of his ministry, he said, repentance will be pre preached in my name for the forgiveness of sins. And here we see the importance given by Paul as well. They must turn to God in repentance and have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So what is repentance and why did people want to leave it out of the gospel presentation? It's simply a change in mind after hearing God's word. Think back before you were converted to Christ. You were believing a false way, weren't you? So when you heard the true way, the true gospel of Jesus Christ, you had to change your mind. You had to believe the truth. It's impossible to believe two opposing views of salvation at the same time. There must be repentance in order to receive the good news. And so I have a picture here of a U-turn. That's what repentance is. 
we were running from Christ, following another message, following the broad way that leads to destruction, but having heard the truth, we changed our mind and changed the direction. And so that's what repentance is. It's granted by God and results in a change of direction, a turning from sin and self to God. It's granted by God. We see in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, that God grants repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth so that we can escape the snare of the devil who holds us captive to do his will. I remember early on in our Christian walk, we were at a church and we saw in the bulletin that the pastor gave two steps to salvation. Believe you're a sinner and then believe that Jesus died for you. So I went to the pastor afterwards and I said, this is an incomplete gospel. There's no mention of repentance. And he said, well, the reason we leave that out is because many people are confused as to what it means. I said, well, why don't you give the biblical definition of what repentance is? He said, no, we just choose not to do that. Well, that was the last day that Jane and I were at that church. But there's another word that's often left out, too, of the gospel presentation. It also begins with an R, and that's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That was also left out in that presentation as well. So what does repentance look like? Let me give you some examples that we see from the New Testament. In Luke 18, 13, we see that repentance reflects on personal sin. What's the context of Luke 18? You see the self-righteous Pharisee and the lowly publican. The self-righteous Pharisee boasted in his righteousness and the lowly sinner, weighed down by his sin, cried out to the Lord for mercy. It reflects on personal sin. By the way, that is the only sinner's prayer that you see in the New Testament. And please note that no one had to lead the lowly publican in it. (laughs) The Holy Spirit brought conviction and he knew his only hope was to cry out to the Lord for mercy. Repentance also resists the devil, as we see in James chapter 4, verse 7. It recognizes divine wrath and has a desire to flee from it, as we see in 2 Thessalonians 1.8. Repentance also rejects religious rituals. How often when you've witnessed to someone trapped in religion, do they say, I was born a Catholic and I'm going to die a Catholic? No, not if you want to be saved. And isn't Paul a great example of that in Philippians 3? He lists his resume there of every reason why he should be received into heaven. A Hebrew of Hebrews. And yet what did he say? I reject all of that for knowing Christ Jesus as my Savior. Repentance also renounces religious heritage, as we see in Luke 3, verse 8. The Sadducees and Pharisees thought that since Abraham was their father, that that was enough to get them into heaven. Not according to Jesus. They had to renounce their religious heritage and put their trust in him. It also reveals spiritual transformation, as we see in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. The fruit of the Spirit. Oftentimes we see professing Christians where there's no evidence of a changed life. There's no evidence of repentance. They're not doing the works of repentance. It's not reflected in the spiritual fruit. 
And we also see repentance relies on the Spirit's conviction and power to turn from sin. It is the Spirit of God that brings conviction, and it's the Spirit of God that empowers us to say no to sin and yes to the Savior. That's what repentance looks like. When you look at Paul's repentance, he had a change of mind regarding the nature of Jesus Christ. This produced a change of direction from a blasphemer who persecuted Christ's church to an evangelist who built his church by opening the eyes of Gentiles so that they would turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God to receive forgiveness of sins. It was the Lord Jesus who knocked Paul off his horse and revealed himself to Paul. This produced a change of mind that produced a change of direction. So, repentance and faith. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? So many people say they believe in Jesus today, but do they really? Let's look what it means to believe in Jesus. It's a trusting reliance on the Lord's infallible word, his awesome power, his faithful promises, his amazing grace and mercy, his holy justice, his perfect righteousness, and his finished work of redemption. To believe in the Lord Jesus Christ is to believe all of this. It is believing God's revelation of, his, of himself and the revelation of man is true. When Peter made the confession of faith, Jesus said, this wasn't revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. It was God-given faith that enabled Peter to know who Jesus was, believing God's revelation of the Lord Jesus, but also believing God's revelation of who we are apart from Christ. So what does it mean to have faith in the death of Jesus Christ? As I mentioned in Sunday school, I always believed that Jesus died for the sins of the world, but never did I believe he died for me. Faith in Jesus Christ is a trusting reliance that he was my substitute, that he died as a substitute for sinners. And his death was to atone or to reconcile me to God. His death was to redeem me from the power and the bondage of sin. His death also was to pay the eternal debt and the eternal penalty for sin. His death was to shed his blood as the only remission for sin and to satisfy the wrath of God. God was propitiated or satisfied when Jesus died for the elect. His justice was satisfied. His death was also to be sufficient and that nothing else is required. The Lord Jesus Christ did it all. As I mentioned this morning, the Catholic religion says he merely opened the gates of heaven with his death. No, his death was sufficient. Nothing else is required. And his death was also to end sacrifices for sin. There are no more offerings necessary. By one offering, he has made perfect forever those who are being sanctified. Oftentimes, as we witness we persuade people to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. But we need to go deeper and explain what the very death of Christ produced, what it offers those who are lost in sin. 
We also need to persuade people to trust in his resurrection. Now think for a moment, the death of Jesus Christ was not a supernatural event in and of itself. Anyone can die or say they die for another. The supernatural event is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the great stumbling block for many. And yet each time the Lord Jesus predicted his death, he also said, but three days later, I will be raised from the dead. So when we have faith in the resurrection of Jesus, we're having faith that his resurrection declared victory over death, victory over Satan, and victory over sin. His resurrection proved that he is who he said he is. Anyone can say, I'm going to rise three days later after I die, but there's only one who was raised three days later. It enables him to live as our advocate and as our mediator. What a glorious thought to know that our Savior is alive today, interceding on our behalf. He's our defense attorney when the devil comes accusing. His resurrection also enables him to impart his life to us. In Romans 6, we see that Jesus can never die again. And he imparts that eternal life to each one of us. The word death means separation. Sin caused separation from us and God. But we have been reconciled through Christ and we are to never die again. Why aren't our sins never counted against us once we are born again? It's because all of our sins were placed on Christ. Don't you love Romans 4, 9? Blessed is the man whose sin God does not impute. In 2 Corinthians 5.19, God is reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's sins against them. Why? They were all placed on Christ. His resurrection was the first fruit of the resurrection of the saints. That is our hope that we will be raised from the dead because Christ was first raised from the dead. And his resurrection demonstrates the power that is now available for Christians to live a victorious life. The same Spirit's power that raised Christ from the dead is now in us, enabling us to live a victorious life. What a glorious gospel we have to proclaim. Fourthly, Paul testified to the gospel of God's grace, as we see in verse 24. We know that grace is the unmerited gift of God and the only way that God saves sinners. Grace must be exclusive of works and justification, as we see in Romans 11.6. Paul says, if it is by grace, it is not of works, otherwise grace is not grace. Does it not then surprise you that the devil, knowing that the only means God saves sinners is by grace, that he has created all these religions in the world that says you must do something to appease a holy and righteous God. Every religion in the world says that, and that nullifies God's grace. Christianity is the only quote-unquote religion that says you are saved by God's unmerited favor, that Jesus Christ did it all, and you cannot add one thing to his finished work. Grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness. In Titus 2, 11 and 12, we see the very grace that saves us is also a tutor for us. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness, no to worldly passions, and to live a self-controlled, upright life. 
Oftentimes, Roman Catholics will say, so all you have to do is believe in Jesus and then keep on sinning? No. Once you know the price Jesus had to pay to rescue us, not only from the punishment of sin, but the power of sin, we want to live our lives in love and appreciation and gratitude for all that Christ did to save us. I love the definition of grace that says it gives us the responsibility to those who are dead in sin. Grace gives us the ability to respond to God's call. He extends grace to the elect. You can say that grace is reaching down, God reaching down to man. God has done everything to save man through Jesus Christ. And again, I think you could narrow all the faiths in the world down to two. There are those who believe that God has done everything through Jesus Christ. And then there are those religions or faiths that says man must do certain things in order to appease God. So religion then is man reaching up to God, telling man he must do certain things to become right with God. Fifthly, we see in verse 27 that Paul proclaimed the whole purpose of God. He made disciples, not decisions, by teaching God's complete plan and purpose for saving his elect. He taught the destiny of man, began at condemnation and goes all the way through glorification for those who have been saved. So if you look at it on a graph, when we were born into this world because of Adam's sin, we stood condemned before a holy and righteous God. But when we come to the cross with empty hands of faith, bringing nothing but our sin, the Lord justifies us. And at that very moment, the process of sanctification begins. That ultimately ends either at the rapture or at death when we are glorified. So justification and glorification become the bookends to our sanctification. Oftentimes, as we're witnessing, we hear that we are to work out our salvation for fear and trembling. Catholics use that as a verse to show that we must work, add to what Christ has done. But what is Paul really saying there? Justification for a believer is always in the past and it saves us from the punishment of sin. Sanctification for a believer is always in the present and it saves us from the power of sin. Glorification for a believer is always pending and it saves us from the presence of sin. So when Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, he's speaking of sanctification, the process from justification to glorification. I mentioned earlier that 2 Corinthians 5.21 is my favorite verse in the Bible because I think in that one verse it describes the gospel of Jesus Christ. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The greatest exchange in human history, our sin for his righteousness. You see, we have to share with people as we witness, there are two things that keep you out of heaven. Number one, you have an eternal sin debt that you could never pay off. The infinite God came down to cancel that sin debt for you in the person of Jesus Christ. But that only keeps you out of hell. You still need perfect righteousness for entrance into heaven. God's righteousness requires perfect righteousness for entrance. 
And so Jesus Christ took care of that as well. He imputes his righteousness to those who will trust in him. The two things that keep us out of heaven were accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you might be accountants or deal in financial matters, but I'd like to share man's condition without Jesus in the form of a balance sheet. Before we came to Christ, under spiritual liabilities, we had an infinite sin debt. We also were separated from God. We were guilty and condemned, and we were deserving of God's wrath. These were just a few of the spiritual liabilities that we had. What about under spiritual assets? How many assets did we have? <laughs> Absolutely zero. Well, what happens to man after he comes to Christ? Under spiritual assets, we now have eternal life in paradise. We have been reconciled to God. We are now forgiven and justified, and we are co-heirs with Christ. What about spiritual liabilities? We have absolutely zero. And do you realize that this is our permanent balance sheet, that this never changes? Isn't this good news to share with people? Who would want to remain unforgiven and condemned when they can come to Christ and be justified and forgiven? This is what imputation is all about. There's only three mentioned in the Bible. The sin of Adam and Eve was imputed to the whole human race. And then for believers, all of our sins were imputed to Christ and his righteousness imputed to us. Paul also warned in verses 29 to 31 of false teachers. This is where I believe many pastors are falling short. Paul actually named names in his epistles. Why would he do something that was so politically incorrect? So that his readers would not listen or follow after these false teachers. Paul says in Acts 20, 29 to 31, that savage wolves will come in among you. Among the elder board, he's speaking to the Ephesian elders, and they will not spare the flock. They will arise from within the church, distorting the truth. For what purpose? to draw away disciples. Watch for them. Take heed. Be on guard. This is where Paul, I believe, really got emotional because he knew that his work there at the Ephesians church was going to be threatened by false teachers that would come in after he left. Oh, so many times we don't take heed the warnings that are given in the scriptures of these false teachers. We're living in very deceptive times. Seventhly, Paul knew the importance of prayer, as we see in verse 36. When I was sitting in a seminary class in Dallas Seminary back in the early 90s, as we came across this chapter of Romans 10, where we see Paul praying for the salvation of the Israelites, why was he praying for them? He described them as having a zeal for God, but not based on knowledge. And so they sought to obtain their own righteousness rather than receive the righteousness that comes from God. As I looked at those verses, I thought to myself, I know so many Roman Catholics who have that same zeal for God, but it's not based on biblical knowledge. And so they too are out to obtain their own righteousness 
rather than knowing God's righteousness requires perfect righteousness, and the only way to receive it is by trusting the only righteous one. And so as Paul prayed for the salvation of their loved ones, we must do that as well. I hope all of you have a prayer list of the loved ones that you're praying for, that God would open their hearts, that God would give you the opportunity to share the glorious gospel of grace. We also see Paul's example of prayer in Colossians chapter 4. He prayed for God to open doors for the gospel to be shared. Never forget that we serve a sovereign Lord, that he has the power to open the doors of opportunity. He also has the power to open hearts as he did Lydia's. In Colossians 4, 5, we see that Paul prayed for wisdom to make the most of every opportunity. We oftentimes lead a very cluttered life. Oftentimes we might miss an opportunity, a divine appointment that the Lord has given us. My wife Jane and I pray for these opportunities, these divine appointments throughout the week as we go to and fro from different places that God would lead his elect across our path. But then we always want to be sensitive. How do we know if the Lord's given us a divine appointment or not? Well, we use two questions to find out. We ask people if they believe in heaven. That's an uplifting subject to talk about. And all but one person over the last 10 years has said, sure, I believe in heaven. Well, the second question is, well, how do you hope to get there? How do you believe you get to heaven? Or a more indirect approach might be, how does your church teach you get to heaven? And listen to what they say. As we have asked those questions over the last 10 years, four out of five times, the name of Jesus is never mentioned. It's always what they must do in order to gain entrance into heaven. And yet we live in a country that claims to be 86% Christian. What are these people hearing from the pulpit? Can you see the necessity of proclaiming the gospel even among our liberal Protestant churches, even among our seeker-friendly churches? The devil has done a good job of planting tares where the Lord Jesus has planted the wheat. So by asking those questions, we cut right to the chase. We find out if indeed they truly understand the gospel. Now, how do we know if we have a divine appointment? If they give the wrong answer, we simply say, if that weren't true according to God's word, the Bible, would you want to know the truth? If they say yes, you have an opportunity. If they say no, shake the dust off your feet. Go on to the next. Paul also prayed for the words to fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. Don't you marvel at this verse? The apostle that wrote over half the New Testament wanted God to give him the words to make the gospel known. And one of the best ways we can do this, of course, is to hide the word of God in our heart. Know where the scriptures are. Know where to turn in the Bible. Like Paul, we must rely on God's power. In 1 Corinthians 1.17, he avoided clever speech so that the cross of Christ would not be emptied of its power. In 1 Corinthians 2.5, we read that faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. So often we hear of people that tried to manipulate people into heaven using clever speech. 
No, just present the gospel clearly and rely on the power of God. God gives the responsibility to us and the ability. Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. Breaking up the word responsibility, God gives us the ability to go out and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. What are some of the motivations to proclaim the gospel? First and foremost, I hope you all realize the greatest motivation is to glorify our great God and Savior. Some of you might think the greatest motivation is to rescue those who are perishing. No, that's secondary. First and foremost is to glorify our God. Isn't that why we're here on this earth? Isn't that why the Lord hasn't taken us home yet to be his light in an ever-darkening world, to bring glory to his name? And so please keep in mind, if you never see a conversion from now until the Lord comes, the very least you've done when you share the gospel is to glorify the one who called you out of darkness into his light. Second motivation, it's a divine command that we must obey. You've seen the Great Commission. It's to all Christians. We must obey it. Thirdly, it's a royal privilege to represent the King of Kings. Think for a moment, outside of being President of the United States, maybe the second most privileged position is to be an ambassador to represent our country to a foreign land. God has given each one of us that responsibility to represent the King of Kings wherever we go, taking his message to those who desperately need to hear it. It's also the most important act of love and compassion that you could ever do. I hope you realize this. Oftentimes we hear of people making great sacrifices, one sibling donating a kidney to another sibling, great act of love and sacrifice, but that only takes care of a temporal problem, doesn't it? What about the eternal sin problem? So sharing the gospel is indeed the greatest act of love. A lot of people miss that, I think. They're more concerned about relationships. Well, if I share the gospel, they won't like me anymore. They won't be considered my friends anymore. My dear brothers and sisters, you have the greatest news anyone could ever hear about the greatest gift anyone could ever receive from the greatest man who ever lived. If you speak the truth in love, why would anybody be offended by what you say? Now, ultimately, the gospel is offensive to those who are offensive to God, to those who are trusting their own righteousness to get to heaven. That's an offense. But when you do it in love, how can anyone take offense? One of the things that Jane and I have done in the past is we have evangelistic dinners. As we meet people, we ultimately invite them over for dinner for the purpose of sharing the gospel with them. We had some dear friends that we had known playing tennis for several months, and so we invited them over. He was an attorney and former Catholic, and so was she, a former Catholic, and now they were nothing. And so after we fed them a nice meal, we set them down and we said, Peter and Diane, we love you too much to not let another day go by without sharing with you the greatest gift you could ever receive. 
And for the next hour, we laid out the gospel. And then we told him in the end, we did this because we love you so much and we want to see you in heaven someday. And we promise to never bring it up again unless you ask us about it. And then when they left that evening, we told them we're not trying to get you to leave anything, to join anything, to buy anything or sell anything. We just wanted you to know the greatest news that you could ever hear. Well, they're still our dear friends. They have a condominium in Pensacola, Florida. They invite us down. And it didn't ruin the friendship. They know that we did this because we love them. And to this day, they've never trusted Christ. They've never been converted. But at least now they know the truth. Another motivation, it's the only message of hope. You know, if there are many different ways to heaven, there'd be many different messages. But we know there's only one gospel. There's only one Savior, and so we must be faithful in delivering this great message of hope. It's also the greatest evidence of a new life in Christ Jesus. I shared earlier in Sunday school how I couldn't wait, once I was converted to Christ, to go home and share with my family. When you know the gospel is the only hope, when you know your loved ones are perishing, you can't wait to tell them about it. We had an opportunity to share the gospel with the wife of a very famous professional golfer, Bruce Litsky. She heard about our ministry. She was a devout Catholic, but she had her kids in a Christian school in Dallas. One time they came home and they said, Mom, all the kids at school are making fun of us every time we do the sign of the cross. They said, if you're a Catholic, you have no hope of going to heaven. And so she heard about our ministry. She wanted to find out why the kids were saying this to her children. And so we sit down with her. In about two and a half hours, we laid out the gospel. And at the end, she said, I see such joy and such peace and such assurance in you and Jane. I want to have that same peace and assurance. How can I get it? And so I opened to Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, and I asked her, would you read this? When you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Look at verse 13. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And she bowed her head and asked the Lord Jesus to save her. And then she said, but what am I going to do? I've just been named fundraiser of All Saints Catholic Church. <laughs> she said, my son is an altar boy. I need to go tell the priest that we can never go back. She said, would you come with me? I said, not only will I come with you, but I encourage you to take me. Because you see, I'm aware of the, the parable of the seeds and the soil. I knew that the seed of God's imperishable word had gone forth, but I didn't want to give the priest an opportunity to come and pluck it away. As the scriptures say, the devil has a chance to come and pluck away the seed. So I wanted to be there when she met with the priest. So we walked in, I introduced myself, and I said, could you explain to Rose how she has any hope of going to heaven? And he articulated the Catholic plan of salvation very succinctly. And then I saw a Bible on his desk, and I said, could you open to Romans chapter 3? I want to read a couple of verses. And so as he read a few verses, and I directed him to Romans 6 and a few other places, I said, how are you going to reconcile what God has just said with what you just told Rose about her plan of salvation? Well, now he knew why I was there. And he looked at his watch and he said, this meeting is over. I said, no, there's nothing more important than settling this woman's eternal destiny. 
And so for the next 15 minutes, he tried to reconcile what God said with what he had told Rose. And each time he did, I came back with another scripture that refuted what he said. Finally, out of frustration, he throws up his hands and he says, look, I don't have the authority to interpret the word of God. We rely on the bishops. And then he dismissed us. We walked out of his office and she said, oh, I know I can never go back to this church. Here's a man with a collar on. He couldn't even explain how to get to heaven. And then I opened to 2 Corinthians 4, 2, and I showed her that we don't need to rely on bishops. God presents the truth plainly to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Well, do you know what Rose did after that meeting? She went home and she put together 17 three-ring binders with all the scriptures that we had gone over that afternoon, and she sent them out to her 17 family members. You see, that's the greatest evidence of new life in Christ. She knew that she was saved and her family was still lost, and she wanted them to know the truth as well. Another motivation, it brings forth great joy. Yesterday at the conference, after my first message, there was a young lady that came up and said, today I have become your Sergio. And I had mentioned about Sergio having trusted the Lord after a message I gave in California. She had tears of joy in her eyes. I said, you have just made my day. This was the reason I came to Minnesota this weekend. And she said, well, this was the reason I came to the conference, was to hear this message. I have been vacillating between what to believe, the Catholic Church or the Word of God. You made it clear. The Word of God has set me free. That brings forth great joy. My dear brothers and sisters, I hope you realize that there's nothing more joyous than to see those who are dead in their sins come alive in Christ. Can I just close with a couple of exhortations? Witnessing is a discipline. We know there are many spiritual disciplines. Please understand that this is also a discipline. You've got to carve out time. You've got to make it a priority. As you go from place to place, look for opportunities, pray for divine appointments, make a prayer list of your unsaved family members, your friends, neighbors, and coworkers. There's no greater joy than to cross that name off after they've been converted to Christ. Do you keep a supply of gospel tracts in your purse or in your car? Everywhere we go, we leave the gospel behind. We have a track entitled, The Greatest News Ever Told, about the greatest man who ever lived, who offers the greatest gift ever given. That track contains only the word of God. The word of God is what's gonna convert the soul. So many tracks today have the words of men and not the words of God which is why I developed that. But we leave that track everywhere. Ask those two questions. Do you believe in heaven? How do you hope to get there? You know, this is one of the greatest obstacles for people witnessing. They don't know how to get the conversation on spiritual issues. Heaven is an uplifting subject. Everybody wants to go there, but very few know how to get there. Offer sinners what Jesus offers. I love my peas. Jesus offers pardon, the complete forgiveness of sin, a peace that surpasses all understanding, the power to live a victorious life over sin, his perfect righteousness, his presence forever. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. He offers paradise. 
and he also offers persecution. Have you been persecuted for the name of Christ? When you share the gospel as God's only way of salvation, you will be persecuted. The closer you follow the Lord Jesus, the world is going to hate you. When you offer what Jesus offers, he will never, ever disappoint them. So often you hear these quote-unquote ministers on TV offering health and wealth and prosperity. Jesus doesn't offer that. That might be a side benefit, but this is what he offers. Let's make sure we make that known. And let me just close with a couple of things that we don't see in Scripture. We never see the need to ask people to repeat a prayer to be saved. I believe this is one of the ways that Satan takes advantage of us by planting tares in his church. If you ask someone to repeat a prayer, how do you know if they've understood the gospel? How do you know if the Holy Spirit has brought conviction of their sin? A parallel is if a person is dying out in the middle of a lake, do you have to teach him how to say help? No, when a person is weighed down by the sin and they know there's only one hope, they will ask you, what must I do to be saved? Just like the Philippian jailer did for Paul. Sinners accepting Jesus instead of trusting him. I don't know where this term came from. Well, I accepted Jesus. Well, I hope he accepts Jesus. No, God accepts us only if we have the righteousness of his son. We cannot accept Jesus. But you know, this is so misleading. Roman Catholics believe they accept Jesus in the mouth through the Eucharist. And so when you ask them to accept Jesus, hey, I've already done that. I do it every week. No, we need to get people to trust Jesus, to believe on his name, to have faith in him. What is a lowly sinner doing accepting a holy and righteous God? We also see an unbalanced emphasis on God's love. As you read the book of Acts and the missionary journeys of Paul and the apostles, do you know how many times the word love is mentioned in the book of Acts? Anybody want to guess? Zero. And yet that's where the pendulum has swung so far in the 21st century church. God loves you. He wants to have a relationship with you. He will do anything for you to come. Now what about God is holy and he's righteous and he's just and he will condemn sinners who die without Christ? Where do we hear that? That's what the apostles preached. Repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And then we see a lot of God responding to man's initiative. No, God is the initiator of salvation. He begins the work and he carries it through to completion. We also see a lot of tolerance of doctrinal error and sin. God not only saves us from the punishment of sin, but from our sin. We must leave our sin behind and practice holiness. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Oh, Father, we do thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul. Might we all be as faithful to proclaim the gospel as the Apostle Paul did. And Father, we realize that it was not in his strength, but in the strength of your Holy Spirit. For those of us 
who have no courage to be faithful witnesses, Father, I pray that you would grant that, that you would give us the boldness and the courage. Father, I pray that you would encourage each one here that we have the greatest news that anyone could ever hear to share. Might we shout it from the rooftops. Might it be on the tip of our tongue everywhere we go. Might we always be ready to give a reason for the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. And Father, I pray if there be anyone here this morning that has never looked to the Lord Jesus as their only hope of salvation, that this would be the morning that you extend grace to them, that you would grant them repentance, giving them a change of mind so that they might believe Christ Jesus as their only hope of salvation. We give you thanks for what you're going to do with these faithful saints as they go and proclaim your glorious gospel of grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.